Hello, hello. Welcome. Hi. Welcome back to the Book on Fire podcast. It is April, kind of getting to be late April. We're in full swing of spring here in the forest we live in. Oh, it's April 20th. Yeah. That's right. The wildflowers are everywhere and the birds are all around us. We have a pretty extensive bird feeding setup around the house. Many nests nearby and hang out here all day. So you'll probably be hearing them singing and talking to each other and claiming territory and checking on each other's mates and partying on the feeders. So you might even hear us being distracted by the birds. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> from time to time. It's a pretty good. <laughs> it bird. happens. It's a good bird show right now. So that's going to be happening. We're going to be talking about the last chapter of Caliban and the Witch today, which seems kind of unbelievable that we're almost done. Yeah. And it's going to be our last episode on the book, too. It's a short chapter, so we're going to go over the chapter and kind of close with some final thoughts. Yeah. Mm -hmm. One funny thing we've been getting feedback on from listeners is that um, in this time of pandemic response, quarantine and shutdown, that uh, people feel really relieved to listen to our podcast um, and not just think about the coronavirus. And I think it's pretty funny (laughs) that... It's a relief to listen to people talk about the witch hunts, but yeah, <laughs> I get <all> right. <laughs> I get it. I also am way too much in the trenches of thinking about the virus a lot and responding to it as an herbalist. Um, and thinking about the present and the future, right? which are both have our attention so hard right now. Yeah. Maybe it can feel like a break to think more about the past. Right. Yeah. Although as we get to by the end, we will be talking about how the past isn't really past. Yeah, right. <laughs> anyway, so this chapter is called Colonization and Christianization, Caliban and Witches in the New World. Um, and I will say that on and off, we will be referring to what is now called North and South America or the Americas. And, so, and at the point of European conquest was called the New World. We're still going to be using those terms, although all of the that region had many different names for the different territories from the people who lived there. Uh, But for the sake of simplicity, we're just going to be referring to the Americas mostly. Um, So just giving you a warning about that, that we will not be using the correct correct indigenous names for all the places we're talking about. So in this chapter, Federici is um, adding to... She identifies that there is a lack in the former scholarship about the witch hunts in the Americas. And as she points out, generally when people talk about the witch hunts here, they only identify what happened in Salem as an example of a European-style witch hunt, which is leaving out really the majority of what were actually witch hunts here in the in the colonies. That has to do with a couple of different things. One is the Europeans' obsession with themselves and only thinking of their own stories as the important ones. But also, there is a way in which what happened to indigenous folks under the initial period of conquest was not seen as the same kind of witch hunt. But as Federici delineates here, in fact, they, th- what happened in the colonies under the name of uh, persecuting devil worshippers and witches looked very similar to what happened back in Europe. For example, I mean, and she goes to lengths to explain how 
just like what happened in Europe, witch hunts in the Americas were used to instill terror, to destroy collective resistance, to silence communities, to turn people against each other, and to create divisions that could be worked with later by the capitalist regime. Yeah, in the introduction here, uh, the introduction to this chapter, Federici introduces or like reintroduces uh, one of the main themes of the book. And reminds us that the references to Caliban and the Witch, which is the title of the book, refer to, you know, Shakespeare's play The Tempest. And in The Tempest, those characters are indigenous to the island that, you know, in this fantasy world of Shakespeare's was colonized by these Europeans or, you know, Prospero took it over and made those people his servants and putting Putting those characters, Caliban and Sycorax the Witch, front and center, you know, on the cover of the book, is a sign of Federici's argument that there was a continuity between the oppression and subjugation of the European proletariat, the peasantry, mm-hmm. and the colonized people of the New World. Mm-hmm. And she elaborates. In both cases, we have the forcible removal of entire communities from their land, mm-hmm. large-scale impoverishment, the launching of Christianizing campaigns, destroying people's autonomy and communal relations. And we also have constant cross-fertilization, whereby forms of repression that had been developed in the old world were transported to the new world and then re-imported into Europe. Mm-hmm. Right? So, yeah, like part of this book's contribution is this maybe not global like all the way around the world but a more a more globalized picture of european of the rise of european capitalism that treats the enclosures the land expropriations the witch hunts and the colonization of the americas as different aspects and different moments of the rise of capitalism and of capitalist primitive accumulation, right? So as we're going to talk about more in this chapter, there were feedback loops and resonances and ideas and forms of subjugation that bounced back and forth between these different spheres, you know? And Federici's not, she is definitely not saying that all of these spheres of oppression were equivalent to one another or that the same forms of oppression exactly were used. But she is arguing that the similarities are also worth looking at, you know, and not just the differences. And yeah, as Janet was saying, part of what she's offering in this regard is some history about actual witch hunts that took place in the colonies. And this chapter is almost exclusively focused on the Spanish colonies. Right. Unlike, uh, we spend a lot of time in the English speaking world mm-hmm. with this book, but in this chapter, we really depart from that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's mostly, there are some references to Mexico, what would be called Mexico, you know, mm-hmm. but a lot of it is in South America. Yes. And her major references are, she says right at the beginning of the chapter that she bases a lot of what she is going to report on two books. And one of them is Irene Silverblatt's Moon, Sun, and Witches from 1987. And Luciano Paranetto's Strega e Poteri mm-hmm. from 1998, both of which are historical investigations into actual witch hunting conducted mm-hmm. by Catholics in South America. Mm-hmm. 
So at this initial point of Spanish uh, conquest, you know, if we want to date that at 1492 or whatever, um, you know, there was there were not witch hunts happening yet back in Europe, but European Christians already had a really, I don't want to call it healthy, a really strong tradition of othering other groups who weren't Christian. There was already a history of anti-Muslim practice and the Crusades. There was already a long history of pogroms and persecution of the Jewish people. So there was already a strong tradition of othering non-Christians by the time that the colonizers made contact with people they didn't even know existed at that point. Yeah, yeah. Um, So... They didn't go into this right away going, these are witches, <laughs> you know, right. that was something that evolved over time. But there was already a practice of othering that they were able to call on mm-hmm. when relating to these new people. And there was language yeah. that already existed around this, you know, mm-hmm. like infidel, which basically just means in this context, not Christian, mm-hmm. not faithful to God or barbarian which goes back to Roman times, mm-hmm. which means like not civilized, right? you know, right? And so these were already terms of aspersion mm-hmm. uh, that were cast against others, mm-hmm. you know, people who were like not like us, yeah. right? And so the existence of these, not just these terms, but these concepts were the seeds, mm-hmm. you know, the seeds of how the inhabitants of Turtle Island would be read, right. you know, by the colonizers, yeah. Yeah, and they were so unprepared for people living in such a different and what they considered uncivilized way that, uh, which is really, uncivilized is a strange word to use when you realize they were also encountering empire. In some cases, in some yeah, cases. right, right. <laughs> but that was still the case. Anyway, yeah. Um, but uh, the <laughs> interactions with indigenous people in the Americas led the European explorers slash colonizers to actually like question like, were these even human? You know, that that was the level to which they were othering these people that they met because they were really confused by the absence of clothing, sometimes full naked, but sometimes just less clothing, depending mm-hmm. on where they were at. The social customs of sharing and generosity were actually seen to be sort of animalistic as well. Yeah. So the lack of like intense property values, private property ideas, and generous practices undermined the humanity of the indigenous folks. And what looked in some cases like almost an absence of work. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That was something too. Oh, and also they weren't trying to amass surplus. Yeah, right. Like people were like doing what they needed to to get by. Yeah. And that was fine. Right. You know, it's we goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast, where a subsistence economy has this negative mm-hmm. meaning mm-hmm. when it can just mean like not working more than you have to. You yeah. Know? Right. Right. So that's right. what they were also not seeing. Yeah. And those uh, versions of encounters were definitely not, they were not describing the more hierarchical empire societies. Yeah. This is more like the smaller bands of people or smaller villages and, and groups, you know. Yeah. Eventually the Spanish would encounter you know, the Aztecs and the Incas. And actually a lot of what we have to tell here is mm-hmm. based in those encounters, especially the Incas. And then that would be 
a different regime. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there might be less leisure. There, yeah. When possibly. an imperial power is demanding tribute. Yes. Yeah. From you. Yeah. There's usually less leisure. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's often uh, forced work in some cases when monumental architecture is being built. Yeah, so this observation that there was more free time or more leisure and and there seemed to be just less toil and hardship uh, in the Americas led some of the colonizers to idealize the Americas in a way and consider it sort of an idyllic space where people had this perfect life, like they likened it to paradise. And sometimes this is also part of where like the noble savage idea comes through, I think, this like pure world before the corruption of civilization comes upon them or something that was one side of how colonizers viewed indigenous folks on the other side was being really struck by the differences in a way that was primarily negative and this came through largely a christian lens Mm -hmm. uh, because they saw what they saw as aberrant sexual practices, whether that be polygamy or sodomy, which what they called sodomy, but queer homosexual practices, lascivious dancing and feasting. You recognize probably a lot of the problems that the European witch hunters also had. A lot of the different practices and lives and religious traditions of indigenous folks seemed diabolical to the colonizers. They saw the worship of nature, nature spirits, the pantheon of old gods and ancestor worship, all as examples of devil worshiping and something counter to the Christian God that should either be converted into Christianity or annihilated. Mm-hmm. And with that demonization of traditional ways, the colonizers were given sort of a carte blanche to like move forward with the project of colonization no matter how ugly it was because these people were devil worshiping bands anyway yeah or they could tell themselves they were actually doing something good even in the most violent times because they are having a civilizing christianizing influence on native people right right yeah and that could come in both senses i mean i think it's interesting, Federici touches on this in the chapter, um, but also indigenous people and others have pointed out that both sides of this dual sense of the indigenous people of the new world are dehumanizing. Yes. Right? right. Like in one sense, they're almost like pre-human, uh, likened to the Garden of Eden, existing in this like fantastical world without toil and as naked as a beast. And if that seems idyllic, then okay. But they're also denying their humanity as real people with complicated lives and real problems, you know. But then, of course, also the flip side is the dehumanizing portrayal as devil-worshipping cannibal sodomites. But either way, the colonizers could use this rhetoric of saving them and Christianizing them, whether it was to bring them from this weird sort of pre-human bestial Edenic state Mm -hmm. into the world of like roll up your sleeves and get to work and Mm -hmm. like have a normal, like a normal Christian family and all of this type of thing, or, you know, saving them from the demonic practices. And I mean, even though this was couched sometimes in the term of saving people, you know, like in the Christian sense of 
So they don't go to hell. Saving them from going to hell. It was still accompanied with a lot of violence mm -hmm. and coercion, mm -hmm. you know, right? So I don't want to mischaracterize this moment in the early times as being like something peaceful uh, because it was still incredibly coercive and violent. But even this wouldn't really last mm -hmm. because, you know, I mean, we're glossing over a lot of the history of colonization, but we're trying to get you to, know, the to the point of the witch hunts here. So, you know, Columbus was 1492. The Spanish conquered the Aztec Empire. That was 1521, right? And then conquered the Incas in the Andes. And the first way that they managed their new imperial holdings was to use the tribute networks mm -hmm. that were already set up by those existing empires. Right. But by about 1550, because of the way the colonization had disrupted the economies of Europe and all of the fallout from that and what Spain was trying to do in Europe as far as expansion and imperialism and debt and a lot of other factors, by 1550 already, the tribute that they were getting through the old networks was not enough for their needs. And so there was a economic need to like constantly exploit more, which is just a theme of capitalism in general. Like, right. Is that like, there's not a ceiling on exploitation. And at this point you started seeing more things go into motion that would ramp up the exploitation. So they demanded more tribute from these tribute networks, but because people couldn't reasonably meet the new demands, the demands had to be accompanied by violence. Mm -hmm in order to even approximate what the Spanish were desiring. Yeah. We're not going to get into that much here, but I will say that hearing about the first 50 years or so of silver and mercury mining in what had become the Spanish colonies is a really horrifying labor history. Yeah. Sure. It's one of the worst I've ever read, for sure. That's not actually in detailed in this book, but I think there's some of that in Debt by David Graeber which we should link to. Yeah. Not because you really want to read about atrocities, but reading about just like the conditions that were leading to silver flooding the market in Europe. It's worth knowing what went down there, especially with the way this story is going to unfold here. Yeah. That's a good recommendation. I think that debt has mm -hmm. a lot to offer. Just another facet mm -hmm. of the economic picture mm -hmm. that was going into all of this. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And so it's at this point, Federici and her sources note that it's at this point, more or less, that you see an escalation of both rhetoric and active oppression and suppression right. of indigenous people in their cultures. And so, like, the coercion to abandon the indigenous gods and spirits and what the Spanish called the idols that the people venerated became really intense right now. Some of the first signs that you could see were just the Spanish would go through and collect all of these icons and idols, as they called them, and just burn them in big heaps mm -hmm. to try to suppress the indigenous religions mm -hmm. or spiritual practices. But it's also at this same time period that you start seeing the imagery of indigenous people being cannibalistic. You know, and the book has a lot of engravings and drawings that were circulated around in Europe. There's dozens of these that depict indigenous people 
in communal settings like feasting on human flesh, Mm -hmm. human remains. And so there was like a propaganda war Mm -hmm. against these folks headed in this direction of their being diabolical, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, And engaged in satanic activities. The drawings were like fantasy. They weren't based on any like actual written record or... Yeah, right. right. Okay. Yeah. There's no evidence that I know of for that. Okay. And she definitely doesn't provide any right. here. Yeah, you for know? Sure. Yeah, it seems like pure, pure fantasy, pure propaganda. Right. And I think also she points out that how when, uh, when those images started coming back, then you started to see the depictions of the European witches' Sabbath starting to start doing also include cannibalism. And um, mm-hmm. so the stories were like feeding each other. Yeah, yeah, there's a resonance there. And there's a fascinating part in here where she focuses on the Andes. Mm -hmm. And she's focusing on a moment of repression, but also a moment of resistance. She talks about the rise of a movement called, I'm not certain of my pronunciation here, but Taki Onkoi, T-A-K-I, and then O-N-Q-O-Y, Taki Onkoi movement, which was a millenarian movement among the indigenous people that preached against any kind of collaboration with the Europeans and for a like a pan-Andean alliance of not just the people, but all of their local gods, which were called the Huacas. H-U-A-C-A. The way that I understand this, the Takionkos were trying to gather up people to be part of this resistance movement mm-hmm. that would be all over the region. They encouraged people to reject Christianity, uh, to reject the food, the clothing items, the Christian names that they were given. And some of the people who have written about highlighted as one of the earliest examples of these broader coalitional resistance movements where people thought about their identity outside the boundaries of their particular, um, I don't know, clan might not be the right word, but as pan-Andean indigenous people that could all like, you know, have something in common and unite together against the colonial oppressors. That's all pretty interesting. She takes a minute to articulate that the wakas were the mountains, the springs, the stones, and the animals that embodied the spirits of ancestors. No, right. And that the wakas were collectively cared for, fed, and worshipped by everyone, and that was people's link to the land. So, yeah, it's really significant, and it should be unsurprising that this resistance movement included all the walkers mm-hmm. as well. You know, um, it wasn't just a movement of people because the people were inseparable from their land and from their ancestors and from the spirits. Right. And also, it's clear that the Spanish, uh, whatever their rationale was, understood that if they were going to be forcing these people to extract as much as many resources as possible from the land, polluting the waters through the mining. And through certain forms of agriculture, they, it would require destroying that relationship. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's impossible to participate in extractive capitalism and honor the wakas at the same time. Right. Right. I can only imagine, right. you know, not being 
there myself. And as you can imagine, the Takionkoi movement was an object of repression, mm-hmm. right? Partially in response to this movement and the increased demands on the exploitation, like we were talking about, shrines were destroyed, idols were destroyed, so-called witch doctors were arrested, orders were given to exterminate these superstitious pagan beliefs. Mm -hmm. Temples were burned, and people who celebrated the native rites were punished by death. And festivities like the banquets, the songs, and dances were forbidden, and the people who practiced them were hunted down. And then this is when you actually see a very recognizable European-style witch hunt show up, where you have torture being used to extract confessions, where you have community members turning each other in Mm -hmm. um, to save themselves or to try and protect their family members. And you see the community be really divided and solidarity broken up in the face of this resistance. Right. It seems like from the account here in the book that it took a few decades for this to really manifest Mm -hmm. because the Takionkoi gets going in the 1560s. And then she points to like what she calls the climax being between 1620 and Mm -hmm. 1660 of like where it would manifest in. Right. actual witch hunts that mm-hmm. that that seemed to follow a very similar right. template right. as the european style of witch hunt mm-hmm. and one of the parallels between the european experience and the colonial experience is that women who were leaders of resistance in takionkoi mm-hmm. and leaders of resistance in the european resistance to the enclosures you know, would also be predominantly targets of these witch hunts. Yeah, for sure. It actually is a lot, a similar timeline, really, to what happened in Europe in that... Yeah, definitely. You know, like, the enclosures happened, there was resistance and rioting against the enclosures for quite a few decades, and then um, to come in, consolidate power, and enforce occupation of land as the status status quo, then the witch hunts begin, you know? And so, you know, in the Andean area... There was also, like, relocation of people. Um, indigenous folks were, like, settled in villages so that they could be under better control. And the resistance was fought by destroying that connection, try- attempting to destroy the connection between the land, but also yeah. by targeting the women, for sure. Yeah. And as Dave was saying, you know, like, the women are were resistance leaders, also were often more in charge of, of, of holding on and preserving the religious traditions. Yeah. So kept a lot of the rites and the rituals... And did that work for the whole culture Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of the times? And would disproportionately be the ones to care for the wakas, like materially, like bring them offerings, all of that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that was part of the reason that they were targeted for sure. But you'll see that. So up until this time period, much like it was in Europe, it was less gender biased who was going to be targeted as a devil worshiper or possible witch. But... Once the, and this is again, maybe who knows like where it started, but as it was seen how effective it is to target women in bringing up solidarity and also in controlling the whole yeah. of the community, yeah. then that strategy was used in the Spanish colonies as well. Uh-huh. So they targeted women and as I said already, used a lot of the same techniques of 
having torturing people to elicit confessions and also um, rewarding people for turning other people in. Yeah. Um, and same as in Europe, often you would see like healers, people, women who might be people who would provide a love spell or a plant cure or be a midwife. Those were still the women that might be targeted first because yeah. they were identified as the ones who were maintaining the old ways. Also, along this time, there was more laws enforcing the nuclear family in the Christian norm way that had been recently created in Europe were also enforced upon these folks. Um, and so they passed laws that, for one thing, they passed laws saying that you could only have one marital partner. And right, so, so against polyamory. Against polyamory and polygamy. Yeah. And so a man who might have multiple wives would have to pick one and the other horse would become his maids or servants if he was wealthy, I guess. But also... They passed laws that spouses had to stay together. And so this meant that when the men were forced to go work in the mines, then the women had to come with them. And that created the same place for free reproductive labor that was happening back in Europe. So there was someone to take care of the household, feed the men, and keep these workers who were in terrible conditions alive a little bit longer mm-hmm. through their unpaid labor back at the house. Yeah. To set up a like kind of a very European model right. of women being the unpaid laborers of social reproduction, mm-hmm. which had not existed previously. Right. Those were not roles right. previously in there. There's a succinct sentence here on page 231 where Federici writes, By persecuting women as witches, then, the Spaniards targeted both the practitioners of the old religion and and the instigators of anti-colonial revolt. Mm -hmm. And more and more, you see this convergence of the accusations of the European witches and the indigenous witches, right? Copulating with the devil, using ointments and flying through the air, Mm -hmm. and all of this become features of the accusations. Yeah. Interestingly, there wasn't really a devil character yeah, in yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the Andean cultures around there, or I think in any of the Americas, really. And, you know, by the time the witch hunts were over, they had people confessing to, like, basically old-school European sabbats where they had sex with the devil and were doing his bidding. Right. You know, but that guy hadn't even existed in that culture Yeah, at that point. So they basically, like, manifested him mm-hmm. there. Right. You know? Right. And another thing that I thought was especially interesting here in this account was, you know, she talks about how these witch hunts happened. Just as in Europe, people were coerced to to accuse each other and their neighbors of witchcraft. It was a terror campaign of humiliation, like people were trying to use these folks as examples. But she notes that, like, one of the objectives of the witch hunt, which was to isolate these women, powerful women, maybe even, from their wider community was not achieved Mm -hmm. in these contexts. That like the witches, quote unquote, were not actually turned into social outcasts. Mm -hmm. And in fact, these folks who would be associated with these practices were like actively sought out Mm -hmm. whenever the community was gathering for village reunions and for the maintenance of ancient traditions. Mm -hmm. And whenever resistance was being catalyzed, that this same pool of people would be essential Mm -hmm. for any of that activity, you know? So that's 
that's another big difference, mm-hmm. kind of. And the ties with the wakas and the sacred sites were not entirely destroyed. Right. You know, right. It's also true that Catholic-led witch hunts tend to allow for some version of pagan ways to be absorbed and syncretized with the Catholic pantheon, while the Protestant witch hunts have less tolerance for any kind of vestigial pagan rites or practices. Yeah, there is there is something going on there, huh? right? Yeah, where I, I mean, so. I'm not sure if like in the moment of the witch hunt, right? <laughs> tolerance is what you would say was there, but no. in the longer arc, the longer span of Catholicism in general, mm-hmm. Catholicism is more open, right, to conquered people syncretizing their other belief systems mm-hmm. and gods and stuff into the Christian pantheon, right, in some way. Whether it's through saints or through the worship of Mary or however it gets mm-hmm. kind of syncretized. Yeah. I mean, I think that she mentions that once pow- the power and control was established to the colonizers' level of desire, <laughs> or once they had their control mm-hmm. that they wanted, then actually the old practices were kind of tolerated again. Yeah. And it was more like um, they just thought it was kind of quaint, old school stup- superstitions, and they were no longer persecuted once power was established. So that kind of shows that it wasn't even really about that. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, but I do think that in Protestant held places, that's less true. Uh huh. Um, that there's less tolerance for old ways. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because the devil can be inside you. Uh-huh. In the Protestant system. <laughs> yeah. But I'll get on a digression if I talk about that for long. <laughs> and there's like, there's just fewer places for the old gods to hide in Protestantism too. Oh, yeah, for sure. They're not, there's no pantheon you know, of saints. Because there's not a pantheon of saints. There's no goddess. There's not, yeah, the Trinity is like less of an act of reality. And Protestantism is, is, its major feature is that it's so stripped down. Yeah, and there's you know, very little ritual. Even the churches themselves, mm-hmm. right, reflect this, mm-hmm. where you go into a Catholic church and it's all nooks and crannies, mm-hmm. you know, speaking just as a visual metaphor and art. or like a spatial metaphor of like mm-hmm. where the old gods can hide, you mm-hmm. know, and then a Protestant church is like a box, you know, with a cross in it mm-hmm. and the walls are flat and unadorned.
Yeah, so I guess she kind of rounds out the whole book with discussing how this process of primitive accumulation through terror campaign and witch hunt is uh, ongoing, yeah. basically. Yeah. Um, and then especially she, and we talked about this at the very beginning, but when she was writing this book, she had been in Nigeria for a while on a sabbatical or maybe on a... I don't know, maybe she was teaching. She was te- oh, she was yeah. teaching there. Okay. Mm-hmm. And she was noticing how the appropriation of lands and resources from the International Monetary Fund that was happening in Nigeria was all at the, was simultaneous with uh, an uptick in witch hunts on the ground there. And she lists some other examples of that, how uh, when certain ongoing colonial practices are happening in India then there will be a surge in witch hunts or people being accused of being witches. And that's something that we see in a lot of the global South that goes hand in hand with colonial expansion and the accusation of witch hunts is ongoing. Yeah. Um, And so she cites that as something that we have to still be keeping a lookout for or to acknowledge as being a continuing pattern because it's worked in the past, it continues to happen. Right. Um, And it is a way that communities can be divided and it can bring up solidarity and resistance to capital expansion. Right. But I also wanted to add that she wrote this, you know, a while ago, but in the past few years in South America, there has been a, a large increase in, in evangelical Christianity. And a lot of folks are converting from Catholicism to evangelical forms. As I was mentioning earlier, there's more room in Catholicism for pre-Christian forms of religion. Yeah. Or syncretic religions mm-hmm. that include Christianity, but have some other gods too. But since the evangelical movement has been taking off in some parts of South America, there has been a lot more suppression of traditional religion, whether that is African traditional religions, so places where there are Yoruba temples throughout where the diaspora had the African diaspora has happened. Yeah. Um, or Santeria, a lot of the different um or uh, Palo. Yeah. So a lot of those different spiritual forms are being actively suppressed, sometimes violently, by evangelical ministers and their disciples. So there's raids on temples, there's people getting beat up. Um, A lot of the targets of this campaign are also women. So this war against the devil, even though he didn't even exist in South America until Mm. this time period, is ongoing and flames Mm -hmm. up to this day. Yeah, and we might wonder, right, like why... So maybe it's not shocking to us that capitalism is constantly in need of expansion, Mm -hmm. right? Like that's a concept that maybe we're familiar with. Capitalism needs to constantly expand. It constantly needs to colonize new terrain, find new points of extraction to set up new markets, right? So, Mm -hmm. So capitalism has to expand. And yeah, the neoliberal period... Oh, yeah. Facilitated by the IMF mm-hmm. and the World Bank and mm-hmm. everything is a recent memory of a big push to globalize capitalism. Right. So we have that. But then we might wonder, like, why, like, why does witch hunting, mm-hmm. instead of being something that took the form it did in the early modern period because of like cultural factors? Right you know, from medieval Europe and a Christian worldview and just whatever it was or something. But it actually comes up in that form as witch hunting. Still. Still. (laughs) Right. Like in places, you know, 
not just repression, like strike breaking, mm -hmm. imprisoning people, putting political prisoners in jail or whatever, like, uh, but actual also witch hunting, you so know, keeps hunting. coming up. Mm -hmm. And he might wonder why. And Federici, she definitely offers at least some answers mm -hmm. to that question in the things that you just touched on, right. which are like women being so often the glue that holds communities together, mm -hmm. the leaders of resistance. Keepers of tradition. And the keepers of tradition. Right. That's being pulverized by encroaching capitalism. Mm -hmm. And then also the opportunity to divide mm -hmm. people along the lines of gender. Mm -hmm. And a potential for terrorizing in an entire communities through the women is still. Exactly. Always useful. Yeah. 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 And I mean, I would argue that even her whole point of the book, which is that it is often women who are past reproductive age who are targeted, continues to be the case around the world. Yeah. So it's also right. that they are no longer producing laborers. Right. If they ever did. Right. But we also have a complementary theory that's put forward by the anthropologist Michael Tausig, mm -hmm. um, who he comes up in Federici's book in a few different places. A couple of books that he wrote that we have in this house are one of them is called the devil and commodity fetishism in South America. Mm -hmm. And then he has another book called shamanism, colonialism, and the wild man, mm -hmm. a study in terror and healing. Mm -hmm. So this is a Australian anthropologist works in the United States, but did his field work in South America. And his work is, there's a lot that we could talk about, about his work. It's really fascinating. But he has a theory that devil beliefs arise in a culture when a new mode of production is being enforced right. or when there's a transition to a new mode of production, mm -hmm. right? So like mode of production, meaning like from the feudal mode of production to the capitalist mode right. of production or something similar. Yeah, know? because he noticed that there was no devil in the his uh, i believe his, is his work in colombia or bolivia no i don't remember i want to say both but definitely colombia yeah i think it is both yeah um but he noticed that amongst the miners and agricultural workers there that they had they didn't have a devil in their original pantheon in their traditional ways which yeah. is what i was speaking of earlier but then once they had to meet these quotas of production mm -hmm. then there suddenly was a devil to make a deal with so you could meet them yeah right and in Tausig's work, it, I mean, it's interesting because it, it's showing up in a really different mm -hmm. way than in like the European witch hunts in the early modern era. But yeah, in that way, nobody who was still involved in the subsistence economy had anything to do with the devil. Right. The devil only entered the picture mm -hmm. if you were selling your labor for a wage. Right. And then the devil would potentially make you a deal to enable you to like cut more sugar cane with your machete mm -hmm. for the man, you know, than the next guy and therefore earn more money. That was part of what Tausig reported on is that the devil beliefs were always in this context. He was never separate from capitalism, right. you know. It was only people who were leaving the, sub the traditional subsistence economy and entering the cash economy that were getting involved with the devil, you know, mm -hmm. which seems very telling, right? Right. Yeah, that's super interesting. We've been listening to this podcast. Yes, we too listen to podcasts. Um, we've been <laughs> listening to this podcast, uh, Conviction, and this season is called American Panic. 
Yeah. And it's about the satanic ritual abuse scandals of the 80s and 90s. So for those of you that don't know, um, starting in the like, I don't know, maybe late 80s, 1980s, there began to be a, a sort of mass movement of both recovered memory, but also accusations gained through interrogation of children. There was a widespread police and judicial effort to expose a network of satanic cults who were sexually abusing children and and doing a lot of other stuff, I mean, sacrificing animals. But it has shown itself to be primarily a episode of mass hysteria. And that's what this podcast that we've been listening to is about. Um, but when they're describing it, there's a few things I actually want to say about that. But one thing is that when the people making the podcast are asking the question, like, how suddenly could so many people believe that there were all these devil worshippers around them, like their neighbors were doing it, and all these people who seemed to be pretty normal? Right. Because it wasn't far out people. No, it would be yeah, like... Who looked goth or whatever. It was just like the parents of your kid's friend. Yeah. You know, who lives or the, down your block. And the people who ran the daycare center. Yeah. A lot right. of daycare centers were involved in this this scare. Anyway, but when this was happening, like there had been what the per- what the host of the podcast says is that Satan was having a moment. <laughs> yeah. And what she meant was uh, the evangelical right were seeing Satan in, in everything. They were seeing it in rock music. They were seeing him in, in Dungeons and Dragons. They were seeing him in this whole, all over the place. They were seeing the devil everywhere. I remember this well. Yeah, me too. So Dave and I yeah. both lived through this. I probably lived through it more acutely because I was raised Southern Baptist and had to go to church and hear about it a lot. Totally. Um, but during this time period, the devil was everywhere. At least at my church, we had to talk about him a lot. And um, what I think is interesting is when we actually try to pinpoint... Okay, so if we're using the Taustic analysis here... Yeah, so... Yeah. <laughs> one co- I mean, there's a number of coincidences here. One coincidence is that we were listening... Happened to be listening to this podcast about the satanic panic in the 80s the same time as we're reading Caliban and the Witch. Yeah. <laughs> is that a coincidence? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah. And then the other coincidence yes. is what you're about to say. Oh, right? So we're thinking about this like Taussig mode of production thing where it's like Satan suddenly, he shows up in cultures when there's a major mode of production change. And so when she says Satan's having a moment in the mid 80s that created fertile ground for people to think everyone around them might be a Satanist. Um, mm hmm even the cleavers next door or whatever, then we were thinking like, well, what happened in the mid 80s? There was the change of mode of production, you know, and is it still happening? Right. And And the answer is there was one. (laughs) Yeah. And there's a couple of things that come to mind. I mean, we're primed, you know, to look for this because we were just thinking about all of these ideas. But one of them is, you know, you could say that the 80s were the rise of neoliberalism. Absolutely. Right? The big global push towards privatization. Of everything. Of everything. You right. know, privatizing water supplies, privatizing seeds, privatizing, you know, enabled by the WTO, the IMF, and the World Bank, and everything that we were protesting against in the Battle of Seattle in the early 2000s and all of that, you know, the anti-globalization protests. That was that movement that started in the 80s with Reagan. and But that came out of a crisis of capitalism that, that capitalism was having in the 70s, right? Because mm-hmm. there were fuel shortages and there was like a lot of strikes and there was a declining rate of profit for a lot of corporations and everything. And then Reagan came along and kind of kicked in this new, not personally, but he was kind of the poster child for this new phase of capitalism that was going to be more exploitative mm-hmm. 
and push exploitation further. And it was also the transition from production-based capitalism mm. to finance-based capitalism. Right. Uh, which, I mean, of course, capitalism still relies on production all over the place, but so much money now is made... In the air. In the air. <laughs> yeah. Just by moving money around yeah. and derivatives mm -hmm. and, you know, securitized debt trading obligations and all of this stuff where it's not even about making goods and selling them and transporting them, although that's still mm -hmm. huge. But it was a phase change in mm -hmm. capitalism for sure. That we're still in. That we're still yeah. that we're still in, you know, mm -hmm. where the real money is made in trading in money. Right. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um and not I'm not talking about currency exchange, I'm talking about all of the different complicated ways mm -hmm. that the financiers work the system. And so, I don't know. Those were my thoughts. Right. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, that I think that uh, also the um, the internet was, was coming out, you know? That's and, right. Yeah. Uh, so, as far as like a, a mode of like production of information and control, Yeah. although it took a while to take off, it was being introduced during that time period and more and more people were on different versions of the net. Yeah. Before it became what we know of it today. Yeah. So I would say that that mode that was going to create a whole new era started around the mid 80s. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, um, before I leave that subject of the podcast, it's also really interesting to read having been, I mean, to hear having read Caliban and the Witch because you get to kind of see like some very similar patterns to how the witch hunts played out in that when we talk about how the witch hunts went down in Europe, like it wasn't like people just started to suspecting everyone around them. Like they got trained to do that. You know, the, so the yep. state would send out spokesmen and be like, everyone around you might be a witch. Here's what you should be looking for. Could be like this, could be this person, could be this thing. And like, when you hear the story of the satanic panic, part of what happened was that there were these therapists and supposed survivors of child sex abuse from Satanists who toured around schooling law enforcement on what to look for. Mm -hmm. And then they started interrogating the children and rewarding them when they gave the right answers. Yeah. You should listen to it, though. It's really good. Before we wrap up, I did want to talk about a passage right near the beginning of this chapter that I was kind of taken aback by. And I feel like this is a good time to talk about it partially because in looking back over the whole book and like taking it all in kind of as a whole, it points to maybe a possible a possible limitation mm -hmm. in Sylvia Federici's analysis. I mean, just one possible limitation, right? And that's this passage where so this is right near the beginning of the chapter, and she's acknowledging that even though the colonization of the New World and the witch hunts there, there's a continuity between that and the imposition of capitalist relations in Europe. And she's acknowledging that even though she's comparing them, that the differences between the two should not be underestimated. And to elaborate on that, she says, quote, by the 18th century, due to the flow of gold, silver, and other resources coming from the Americas into Europe, an international division of labor had taken place that divided the new global proletariat 
by means of different class relations and systems of discipline, marking the beginning of often conflicting histories within the working class. Yeah. And this is the part where I see the value of having a Marxist framework, Mm -hmm. even though Marxism is not the ground of my analysis of the world the way it is for a lot of people. I, you know, I love this book that we're reading and it's very much grounded in a Marxist framework. But here it's like the Marxist language feels like a straitjacket. Right. You know, where the indigenous people of North America and what's implied here too is that the Africans who were to be enslaved are all being treated as different fractions of the working class. You know? Yeah, that's rough. And like, it's just when I read that part, I think like I can't really imagine indigenous Americans telling their own story of being subject to colonization using this kind of language and being like, and this is how we got divided from other members of the working class. (laughs) Right. You know, it's such like a imposition of Mm -hmm. the Marxist framework, like onto this very, these experiences and these histories that just can't be contained by that language at all. Right. And I'm sure that uh, enslaved Africans at the time probably also would not have felt like they were members of the working class. Oh my gosh, yeah, right, (laughs) right. right. And I know that people engaging with Marxism have addressed at length this question of like, is it correct to talk about enslaved people as members of the working class, (laughs) right? So this is not an unanalyzed topic. (laughs) We're not the first people to think of that problem. Yeah, Yeah, right. And I don't think that taken as a whole, Sylvia Federici as a scholar and a theorist or Caliban and the Witch as a book taken as a whole, you know, is guilty of imposing a very strict Marxist lens onto every little thing that she looks at and not allowing for the different other perspectives and stories to rise up through it, because I think that the book does a pretty good job of that. But in this passage, it just seems tone deaf to the aspects of history and people's experiences that did not submit to a Marxist analysis mm-hmm. strictly. Right. Right. And um, the way that I think this relates to you know what could be said about the book as a whole is that, like I've said before, Federici applies in most instances what could be called a functional analysis or a functionalist analysis mm-hmm. of oppression, exploitation, demonization, dehumanization, all of these things where what she what she's always going to look for is why did this have to happen, right? There's an answer. Mm-hmm. It makes sense from the logic of capitalism why women had to be demonized. Mm-hmm. You know, why indigenous people had to be depicted as devil worshipers because it enabled their exploitation right because the dehumanization was a green light mm-hmm. to intensified economic exploitation and i want to acknowledge the fact that marxist theorists in general and Sylvia Federici in particular, sometimes strike people as constructing explanations that are maybe too logical. 
and too functional, where horrific acts and violence and dehumanization are portrayed in a way that, like, all makes sense. Given a certain set of, like, historical actors and a set of situations in the machinations of capitalism, Mm -hmm. oh, now it all makes sense, like, why those people had to be demonized or dehumanized Mm -hmm. or enslaved or something, you know? And, And there's something comforting about the logic and the functional explanations, you know, where I know like theorists in the Afro-pessimist lineage talk about anti-black racism and violence as something that is gratuitous mm-hmm. and overspills the boundaries of any kind of function and goes beyond sense. And is maybe even... Even the sense of capitalism, right. which is demonstrably exploitative and aberrant. What I was just going to say is that also, like, maybe the anti-black violence is maybe an end in itself. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, for some people. Yeah. Um, and it, and there's not a good explanation for it. Right. For the level to which it is. And I would argue that about the public spectacle of the trials and torture and the witch hunts were, yeah. were an end into themselves as well, which she doesn't yeah. totally talk about. Right. Um, or tor- at least became an end into right. themselves in a way. Uh-huh. You know, which maybe anti-black racism could be said to have a similar trajectory. trajectory. Right. Potentially, I'm not. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not seriously putting this forth. But like, what began as an economic need and the racialized justifications for it would become something else, excessive, gratuitous, uh-huh. and of a different quality later. I guess wholly functional explanations don't really allow for emergence or allow for new systems. Or purposes that don't have an end. That's possible. Maybe. That's possible. Yeah. Or like a lot of functional analyses are stuck in the world of simple machines mm-hmm. and fairly simplified causality, mm-hmm. you know, and, and haven't yet, this is an interesting way to think about it, and haven't yet grown to be able to handle truly complex right. phenomenon and their emergent properties. Mm-hmm. But I just wanted to say that. Right. I just wanted to say that part because mm-hmm. I think that this is a brilliant book. And a big part of the value of the book is the sense that it enables us to make mm-hmm. of history mm-hmm. and the interconnectedness between all of these moments of what she calls primitive accumulation mm-hmm. and these moments of subjugation. And also, we should be careful not to take the functionalist framework of the book Mm -hmm. to be a totalizing framework that tells us everything we need to understand about reality and oppression Mm -hmm, because i think that there's more to it Mm -hmm. than just fulfilling the needs of capitalism yeah and actually another contemporary example would be the ongoing femicides in mexico oh yeah yeah which is not functional right what is the purpose right it's they're absolutely gratuitous and though it is a terror campaign, it doesn't seem to have a point. Right. Yeah. Um, and One really struggles to find the functional analysis. Of, right. Uh, and yeah, so and that the femicides might be downstream from a lot that happened during the colonial era. And I'm mm-hmm. sure that a lot of theorists would say that. Mm-hmm. Um, and from the culture that was fostered there. Mm-hmm. But definitely the violence is gratuitous and pointless. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that in this context, but yes. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, so I would add that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I don't know. I've been thinking a lot about the journey we've made through this book and where we were when we started and where we are now. Huh, it's a pretty interesting time to be reading this. Yeah. When we started talking about it, um, when we first introduced this book, it feels like a thousand years ago now, but... Yeah, right. <laughs> was actually January, maybe? Yeah. Um, uh-huh. Uh-huh. January of 2020, when that happened. We were talking about how we chose this book because it was about a major transition that changed the world and how the world was run that had a huge impact on people and all the, and the rest of life. Yeah, definitely. Back then, we talked about how we picked this book because we seem to be in another major transition right now, which is, definitely. What, which is what we said in January, mm-hmm. and that we wanted to learn lessons, any lessons to be learned from this other major transition, and just kind of think about the way that power works in times when a new mode of production and control is being introduced and enforced. And, well... Yeah. Well, hopefully, I mean, what we've studied with Caliban is the transition into capitalism. And what's transitioning now is still up for grabs. (laughs) It is our hope and the target of our efforts that it's not just a transition into a more intensified or more sophisticated form of exploitation. Right. Right. Yeah. And we are agents in the transition. Right. Right. Which is a theme that we keep coming back to on the book on fire podcast. It's not right. just stuff happening to us. You know, we are part of making things happen. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So now here we are. Uh, this last bit we're recording on April 24th. That's right. Many of us have been in some sort of shelter-in-place mode of activity for a month, some people a month and a half, depending on where you're at. And I don't know, it's pretty interesting to see this all happening while we've been discussing this book, because what we were discussing at the beginning was that we seem to be on the cusp of a transition, and I guess probably to most of you paying attention, it seems to be happening much faster even than we thought. And the pandemic and the effect on the economy and on the social fabric is definitely accelerating at this point, the transition that we already were describing back then. Uh, So I guess since we're wrapping up the book, I just want to talk about what can we learn from the previous transition and enforcement of the new regime and what should we be looking out for in this one? I have some hopes and fears around some things that are happening right now that I just want to name. One of them is, yes, the idea that there could be an intensification or a more, even more brutal form of exploitation coming. Mm -hmm. And especially since transitional periods sometimes are more violent and brutal than what comes after. Yeah. You know, But one of the hallmarks of capitalist society is the enforcement of alienation and separation. People are kept from each other. They are alienated from meaning in their lives. They're alienated from their work. And they're alienated from each other. And the rise of mediated forms of communication has definitely increased that, both isolation and alienation exponentially at this point. 
And now we're looking at a time in which there is a chance that digital connection is going to feel safer to a lot of people. Yeah. Because of the residual effects of this pandemic and the fear of embodied contact and the fear of gathering. And that really frightens me, <laughs> which mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think that it's been well shown throughout history that when people are afraid, they're easier to rule, they're easier to dominate, and they tend to not stand up for each other when they're afraid. And this is what we saw happen in the witch hunts, is the terror campaign kept people from fighting for each other. It kept people from collectivizing against the forces that were keeping them down. Although they did, that was suppressed partially through the violence. And I fear that the the powers that be will weaponize this viral pandemic to keep us from getting together and from organizing and from having a shared sense of community and facing whatever is to come. Mm-hmm. And I just want to put forth that I, I think it's really important that we keep a handle on fear right now and that we don't let it rule us and that we are careful with how much information we take in, think about where it comes from, And also understand that while digital connection can feel safer in some ways, it's also more dangerous in some ways in that it is really heavily surveilled. There are some ways to try and get around that somewhat, but organizing digitally is going to be not very safe Mm -hmm. in general. Mm -hmm. But also, I fear that we are going to move into a time of being even more disembodied in our moving through the world and our connecting to each other. And this, one of the side effects of that is that generally when people are more connected to their own bodies, they're more connected to the rest of life. Mm-hmm. And I fear for what the fate of the more than human in the world is if we are losing more and more connection to our own bodies. Mm-hmm. That's terrifying to me, actually. Mm-hmm. And so if I was going to say, what are my what are my recommendations in this time? And is that we try to maintain connections to others, even if they're at a distance. Think about the material needs of the people around us, of those who are vulnerable in our communities, and that we figure out ways to hang out with and gather with other people in person when we can. And that we don't let the fear of this moment even those of us who have compromised immune systems or pre-existing conditions, of which I am one. I just want to say that I don't always come out and talk about that a lot, but I have my own health problems that I'm bringing to this that could make me very afraid to be around people who might be contagious. But Mm -hmm. I really want to make sure that that fear is not ruling my life. Mm -hmm. And I want to encourage people as much as possible to get out into the world when you can. And although the state parks and the national forests are prohibited right now. The abandoned lots are not. The weird green zones that are around industrial spaces are not. And that you can get out and explore and get to be around, start to actually notice how vibrant and alive some of these novel ecosystems are. Mm-hmm. But I recommend getting together, trying to work to stay embodied when we can and not giving in to dissociation, even though it can be a tool for dealing with stress. Yeah. And to remember to gather in person when we can. I know I said that a couple months ago within this podcast and then things got 
really weird, you know, but I still think that that's valuable and that our collective action is going to be what helps determine the world that is going to come from this. And that if we allow fear to keep us separate and alone, we're not going to have as much of an impact. Yeah. And so I also want to add that while I'm seeing things that make me nervous right now uh, in response to the pandemic, I'm also like super inspired by all the mutual aid projects I see. I'm so inspired to see that like really mainstream news services and outlets are talking about mutual aid suddenly. Yeah. Which is so cool, you know, yeah. like this, so this is like one of our key anarchist concepts is actually becoming like everyday language to people, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and the truth just is going all the way back to like what Kropotkin observed is that we animals do better when they collaborate and work together to survive harsh circumstances and just to have a good life. And so if we're going to move into this next phase through whatever's coming, then the more that we strengthen those connections in the flesh, the more that we participate in taking care of each other, the better we're going to do. And it will help us as we work to influence the outcomes and to lay the groundwork for the new world that is emerging. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, maybe we should, yeah, maybe we should leave it there yeah. and call it good with our discussion of Caliban and the witch. Uh, I'll call it good enough. Call it good enough. (laughs) (laughs) I just mean that I feel like there's a million other things that could be said and um, other like thoughts you could expand upon. It's not done. Yeah. But it's good. Yeah. Thanks for everyone who's participated or sent in reflections. And thank you to Sylvia Federici for giving us this informative and really thought provoking book. Mm -hmm. And thanks to everyone who's taken an interest in Yeah not just what we're doing, but in the content of this book and learning the, mm-hmm. our collective histories. Um, so we are going to sign off for this season. There will be a little bonus episode that we're going to give you all. It's going to come out in a couple of days, and that'll be for May Day. And then I don't know when you'll hear from us again after that. We hope you have a good summer. Go outside. Yeah, go outside. Bye, y'all. Mm-hmm.